But it is great to have hecklers around, and uh, uh, it's a great joy to us uh, to uh, let them uh, wander freely. We're uh, fairly chilled about uh, families. We absolutely enjoy them. Let's pray that God will help us to keep track of what he says so that we can see that our lives are all about Jesus, not just a song. Let's pray that. A wise man called Cornelius, when he was in front of a preacher, said, Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Father, we do want to thank you that we are all gathered here and we are all here to listen, not just to what Peter said, as Cornelius did, but we can listen to uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and we pray that you would please help us to listen to all these words, not just as interesting history trip, but as words that you command us to know and live by. So give us wisdom to do that, we pray, as we study your word tonight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 8, and verse 27 is where we start, on page 844. And I'll read to verse 36. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he said to them, What do you say that I am? Or who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Where well, we stop there, I think uh, Mercy is going to uh, lead the charge and the children uh, out into a different uh, room and will pick up as soon as they've gone. And I'll apologise to you for not pressing the buttons as I do. Uh, it's a failing that I have 
uh, I try and do the pictures, um, and sometimes I get the pictures to go with the words, but not always. So, here we are. Wonderful. We've got uh, room to ourselves, and uh, a little picture to think about. Let me tell you that the fastest helicopter flight over the whole world took just 29 days in 1982. That wasn't it, incidentally. <laughs> but uh, that's how fast you can go in a helicopter. Well, we're going to be breaking more records because we're going to not just do the whole world, we're going to do the whole of time beginning to end in just five days. And as we fly over the Bible, that's what we're doing in our helicopter, and look out the helicopter windows, we discover that the Bible is actually all about one story. And you can draw it in a picture like this. It's about God's special people in God's special place under God's special king. Now that's how the Bible started in the, land of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, and that's how the Bible will end in heaven. But in between, we lost our way. We disobeyed God. We were removed from the special place. We lost it. And the Bible is one story about how God gets his special people rescued and returned to the special place. And we know that uh, he does that with Jesus in the New Testament. Before Jesus comes, he shows us how he's going to do it by making a model in the Old Testament. And so in the Old Testament, the model family, Abraham, and his children lived in the land of Canaan. That was the model special place, get to be called Israel later. And they were finally given their special king, King David. And he ruled in God's place over God's special people in their special place. But that was the Old Testament, that was the model. When God comes to the real thing in the New Testament, he reverses the order. So he starts with his special king, who calls to himself a special people, and then ultimately leads them in the future to the special place, the new creation, sometimes we call heaven. And if you want to understand, therefore, uh, how the plan works, you've got to start with where God starts, which is with his special king. And it's very easy to understand the Bible. 66 books, but really one picture. That's the picture. Or you might want to look at a different picture. Think of the Bible as a picture of a wonderful person, say Her Majesty the Queen. And if you look in the background, uh, as you see this wonderful royal portrait, uh, you might see a painting of Windsor Castle to show that she has an ancient history and comes from a long way back. And you could also, that's like the Old Testament, where the Old Testament shows us that Jesus comes from an ancient history and a long way back. And then you see her majesty's wonderful, majestic clothes. And you look at the letters that are written in the New Testament. And they show us together how majestic the Lord Jesus is. But then you get the four gospel writers. And 
they, if you like, paint different pictures of her face to show us how wonderful it is. And so we have uh, 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 different pictures, four pictures of the Lord Jesus. And if you had just one gospel, it will tell you what he's like, but it won't give you the full picture of his glory. With four, we have the full view of his great goodness. So we start in order with Matthew. Now Matthew is very easy to understand because he is the nearest to the Old Testament. So therefore, straight after the Old Testament, you want to get to Matthew because he will tell you how Jesus fits the Old Testament. And you can tell if you go to Matthew's Gospel and it will help if you could do that uh, to, where it's not written, but page 807. And you'll see that uh, uh, Matthew is going to tell us how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And he does it in a very special way, in a very clever way. He takes three Old Testament characters, Abraham and Moses and David, and he says how Jesus is like each one of those men in the Old Testament, but also different. So he starts with Abraham, and he says that Jesus comes from the family of Abraham. You can see that in the first two verses of Matthew's Gospel, Abraham is mentioned twice. He's the son of Abraham. And he goes back to Abraham as the father of Isaac. And you remember how God promised when he spoke to Abraham that through his offspring all the nations of the world will be blessed. Well, the offspring, singular, is Jesus, through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. But there's a twist in this. The offspring of Abraham, the children of Abraham, are not those who are in his line, direct descendants in his race. The direct descendants in Abraham's race actually killed Jesus. Now, what Abraham did is that he trusted God, and therefore his children are the ones who trust God the way Abraham did, even if they're not in his family. So you see in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 1, two women who are mentioned who are not part of Abraham's racial family, but who trusted what God said the way Abraham did. They took his promise at face value. So you've got those two women in verse 5, you've got Rahab and you've got Ruth, neither of them born Jewish as it or born an Israelite, but nonetheless trusted God the way Abraham did. And if you turn just a few more pages to Matthew chapter 8, you see another person who's not Jewish. He happens to be a Roman. He happens to be a Roman army officer. And he happens to have a Roman army officer who has a servant who's not well. And he asks Jesus to come and make the servant better. And so in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 onwards, you see how he asks Jesus to come. Jesus goes, and then he stops Jesus. He says, no, don't come to my house. I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. All you have to do is say the word. That's enough, because what you say will happen will 
happen. And so he says that in uh, verse 9, uh, sorry, in, in verse 8, the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, this is amazing. Amongst the racial descendants of Abraham, I haven't met confidence like this. And that's exactly what he says in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. But then he goes on to say, this man's a child of Abraham, because he says, many will come, and so will other people come. Um, who are not racially descended from Abraham. They come from east and west. In other words, nothing to do with the geographic place that Abraham once lived in. And they'll come and they'll be at the family table talking about this man. And they will recline a table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, that is the racial descendants of Abraham, where many of them will be thrown into the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But to the centurion, he says, yep, you are like Abraham. It'll happen to you as uh, you have believed. So Abraham's there to teach us how you trust God and become Abraham's family. But then Matthew tells us that Jesus is also like Moses. Boy, is he like Moses uh, in lots of ways. So Moses, if you, I'll read it to you so that you don't have to look, but on page 161, if you do want to go and have a look at uh, Moses' pep talk to the children of Israel, uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. Bear those words in mind. Before you forget them, quickly turn to Matthew chapter uh, 17 and verse 5, where Jesus is actually seen with Moses. And God tells the people with him, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Because, yeah, you've got Moses here, but Moses is not the person you're listening to anymore. Listen to him. And there's lots of ways in which Jesus is like Moses. Uh, he... <clears throat> was born in a time only Matthew tells us that at the time Jesus was born the king was killing babies. But you remember when Moses was born Pharaoh was killing babies. And to escape Jesus' parents took him to Egypt to escape the king who was killing babies. And so therefore, when Jesus comes back home, he's, if you like, making the same trip that Moses made from Egypt to the Promised Land, just like Moses. In fact, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, just like the Mo people of Moses were tempted to give up on God in the wilderness. 
and you have flashbacks all the time. And you see from the picture that uh, Moses, actually no, the picture's not that clear, is it? But Moses took his people up a mountain, remember? Mount Sinai. But he didn't actually take them up the mountain, he told them the opposite. He said, no, keep away from the mountain. Don't come near the mountain, you will die. And yet Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives people words from God, like Moses did. But only in his case, he invited people to come up the mountain with him. Because now they could be safe. You could approach God safely because Jesus was there. So in Matthew chapter 5, you have people in chapter 5 verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain when he sat down and his disciples came to him. So again, Moses is uh, a wonderful um, uh, uh, prequel to Jesus, but Jesus is different. Just like with Abraham's children, there's a twist. It's not the racial descendants, it's those who trust him. So with Moses, there's a twist. So that Moses, Jesus takes his commandments, the ones he gave up when he was on the mountain, and he changes them so that they go deeper. So he tells in Matthew chapter 5 and in verse uh, 21, you've heard it said, don't murder. I'm telling you, don't be angry. Again, another commandment that they got up on the mountain, uh, verse 27, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, Jesus goes much deeper. He searches out the heart for obedience, not just something outward and physical. And so Jesus is a greater one than Moses in that way. But he's also a lot more gentle than Moses. I guess uh, words that could be written in gold are found in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. You remember Moses' words were seen as a, a burden, hard to keep the commandments. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, because he's going to fulfill the law of Moses in our place. And Jesus is also like Mark. Uh, sorry, David. Uh, David, sorry, David. Yeah, I've got that yet, have I? David, yes. Uh, Jesus is called uh, the son of David so many times. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, you look in the middle of his family. In verse 17, it's all up at, uh, David's back in the middle uh, in all the different names that are mentioned. To make the point that David is central. Why Jesus was even in cha Matthew chapter 2, born in verse 6, chapter 2 verse 6, born in the city of David. Bethlehem is where David came from. 
And so he was constantly known as the son of David. When he went to Jerusalem the week before he died, they were singing songs to him, Hosanna to the son of David. And yet again there's a twist. If you look at uh, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 41, uh, you'll see where the twist is. Matthew 22 and verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. Jesus said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Well, of course, if they understood that David had a son who he called Lord, well, now they're open to calling Jesus Lord, aren't they? They don't want to do it. They keep quiet in verse 46. And it's amazing that a Jew would claim that. And so therefore, uh, Moses, uh, Matthew brings Jesus to us with a very great past. And those three characters give us all the flashbacks to show us the greatness of Jesus that the Old Testament points to. Wonderful summary of how great he is. Now we get to Mark. And Mark is there to paint Jesus as the suffering servant who calls us to suffer as well. That's the Bible reading that we had at the start. Now, look, you probably know that not all the Gospel writers lived with Jesus at the time. Mark was probably a young man at the end of Jesus' life. And therefore, it is likely that Mark's Gospel is really Peter's Gospel. Because Mark's Gospel tells us all those times when Peter was there. And so therefore, Mark is probably uh, copying down what Peter has said. And Mark's Gospel is a very easy Gospel to understand. It's like a game of football, it's in two halves. So the first half has got 16 chapters, the first half to chapter 8 is all about the miracles of Jesus to show us that he is God. And so Mark recalls all the different miracles of Jesus and it records the question people asked after he did a miracle. Who is this man who could do that? And so therefore when he at the very beginning heals a person who was um, demon-possessed, they asked the question, who is this? With what authority does he cast out demons and they obey him? Then what about the time when in Mark chapter 2, this man is lured from the roof in a mat and on a mat and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And they immediately turn around and say, who is this man? Who has authority to forgive sins? And what about the time when he calmed the storm? 
disciples were all asking, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? See, so you've got this question, after a miracle, who is this man? What's the miracle pointing to? And then you get the answer halfway through, at half time, you get the answer in Mark chapter 8, and uh, you get the bit that we read the Bible. And on the way, Jesus, in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, some say this and some say that. But who do you say? You've seen the miracles, haven't you? Who do you say that I am? In verse 29, Peter says, you are the Christ. You are God. You are the king that God promised us we would have. But then very strangely, Jesus immediately says, shh, don't tell anybody. Why? Because what Jesus immediately went on to tell them is that he was going to suffer. And you can't tell anyone who Jesus is until they know what kind of saviour he is going to be. And he makes the point that if we are going to follow a suffering leader, well, we need to be prepared to suffer too. And so he says in verse 34, calling the crowds to him with his disciples, said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So for Mark, a Christian is someone who is willing to suffer, a Christian is someone who is willing to serve. Because the most important verse in Mark's Gospel is Mark chapter 10 verse 45 which says the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so serving is a big deal for Mark. Even at the very beginning he starts dropping hints. So in Mark chapter 1 and uh, verse 29 you see how Mark heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. In, in Mark and chapter 1 and uh, he leaves the synagogue, he goes to the house of Simon Andrew and Simon Peter's mother-in-law in verse 30 is ill with the fever and Jesus came and took her by the hand and healed her, lift her up and healed her she has an amazing uh, uh, amount of uh, 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 faithfulness that, ma that, that, that uh, Simon Peter had that he would follow Jesus even after healing his mother-in-law um, and so what did he do? He lifts her up and the fever leaves her. And what did she do? She began to serve them. The mark of a person who has been genuinely touched by Jesus immediately starts serving. That's typical of Mark and the point that he wants to make throughout his gospel. So, serving others, putting to death our own interests. Remember, Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. So, anyone who's going to put aside their own interests for others to serve him are going to be the authentic followers of Jesus. 
Others might join the church as a club. Many people do that, of course. But the authentic ones are the ones who will serve. I had a slightly uh, humorous uh, 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 WhatsApp exchange about uh, whether elite Christians are elite. Uh, and, uh, and you suddenly see that Mark tells us actually it's the other way around. Christians come, it was to do with primary teaching, the, 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 the servants come and pray, and the elite come afterwards and are served. So it's a wonderful thing, uh, Mark uh, points us to being servants of the Lord Jesus. And then uh, you've got uh, Luke. And uh, Luke wonderfully paints Jesus as the saviour of the world. Luke is the only non-Jewish gospel writer. He becomes a Christian later. But Luke is a doctor, so he knows how to research and get the facts. And he does that. He talks to different people who were with Jesus and he writes an orderly account. You can see that in Luke chapter 1. Let's go there. And so Luke chapter 1, and there's an orderly account, the route that, that Luke is writing. Um, in verse 3, seems good to me that having followed things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. So that's what Dr. Luke wants to do. And he wants to tell us, he is bubbling over to tell us that the gospel is for everyone. That's why he wrote two books. And this book in Luke is telling us how Jesus went to everyone, and Acts, the second book, tells us how the gospel went from Jerusalem to everyone, ending up in Rome. And he is the one who constantly, constantly, constantly wants to tell us the gospel is for everyone. Say, chapter 3, verse 6, everybody knows how John the Baptist introduced Jesus. Only Luke adds that as John introduces Jesus, uh, he is fulfilling Isaiah the prophet where all flesh will see the salvation of God. And Jesus comes for all sorts of people. He comes from uh, uh, the sick uh, and the suffering. He comes for children. He comes for rich he comes for poor, he comes for tax collectors, and he comes for social outcasts. So it's Luke that tells us about the unpopular Zacchaeus. And uh, he is the one who tells us about uh, the proud Pharisee and the humble tax collector. And how it's the tax collector in Zacchaeus' case, and in the story that Jesus said in uh, Luke 18, is the one who becomes friends with God. It's uh, Luke who tells us about uh, the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans, in case you didn't know, were a mongrel race, just like the English. Uh, and uh, so uh, uh, they were the ones who were despised by the Jewish, who always felt they were slightly uh, uh, more upmarket. But uh, Luke is the one who tells us how the Samaritans were constantly being commended by Jesus. So there were ten lepers, only Luke tells us, and they were all healed. Only one came back and 
he was a Samaritan. And uh, he tells us about uh, the good Samaritan. There were two Jewish people who saw a man who was uh, uh, hurt and injured. And on the road to Jericho, they did nothing. The Samaritan helped him and looked after him. And so that's what uh, Luke wants to tell us. It's for everyone. And Luke is the one who tells us in Luke chapter 15 how God searches for the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. He's always on the lookout for those who are far away to bring them home. And so it is Luke that tells us the secret of how far away people can come to love Jesus. And it's there in Luke chapter 7. And he tells the story of a woman who came and uh, washed Jesus' feet. And in uh, that uh, uh, story, uh, he, uh, he speaks now, where is it? Um, oh yes, um, in uh, Luke chapter uh, 7 verse 47, you begin to see the, the secret to understanding how to love Jesus. Because she was someone who was far away, but now her sins, which were many, are forgiven, and so she loves Jesus much, because she was forgiven much. So if you want to know the secret of loving Jesus much, just focus on how much you've been forgiven. The more you realize you've been forgiven much, the more you will love much. And I'm sure there's a child that will probably need to be forgiven at some point uh, out there uh, for hitting another child over the head or whatever it is. Caused the directions. Okay, lastly and quickly, let's look at John. And John tells us, just flick on a few pages to John chapter 1, and you see that John is the one who tells us that Jesus made the old creation, and therefore Jesus can make a new creation. So John is always pointing to the future, the new creation that. Uh, uh, Jesus is going to create and bring in. And what uh, uh, John must tell us is that Jesus came into this world so that he may take us into his world. I guess the two arrows that would show it might look something like this. Jesus said, I've come to prepare a place for you and then go so that where I am, you may be also. Jesus came from heaven to earth, so we can go from earth to heaven. That's the point of uh, John's Gospel. And that's where Christians are pointing. Now, it's true that Christians make this world a better place, where there are Christians together, but... Our main appetite is to look beyond this world. 
And so the famous song that we, uh, so the f- famous verse of John's Gospel is John 3.16. And it is ultimately a verse about heaven. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that's why George very uh, helpfully picked that song to start our service with. And that's why John will give us lots of resurrection appearances of Jesus to show us what the future life will be like, that we can trust it, that it's something that someone has experienced and we will experience it too if we follow him. And that's why John wrote his gospel. Now the most famous verse of John's gospel is 3.16 but the reason why he wrote the gospel is there in John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John said if I wanted to write a book with everything that Jesus did well there'd be lots of books. But what, he, what John does is he's very selective. He's not going to write lots of books. He's going to write this one. And I'll tell you, this book that he writes essentially maps out 21 days of Jesus. There are 21 chapters that roughly go with 21 days. So it's a much more detailed description of what Jesus did to bring us eternal life. In fact, if you look at uh, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, they're all about the night before Jesus died, just one night. So it's a very, very selected bit of writing that John does because he wants people to have eternal life. So each artist shows us something different about the face of Jesus. They did, as George said, give us the length, the depth, the breadth, and the height. He comes from centuries of expectations. He comes with a willingness to suffer deeply. He comes to go for a broad range of people wide in his love. And he take, comes to take us to the heights that he came from. So, let's take this home and apply it to three different people maybe. One, if you're near and you're not a Christian. Let me tell you that tonight there are four men who want a word with you. Matthew would tell you to trust like Abraham that what Jesus said will happen, will happen. Build your life on that. Mark will tell you, look, your sins are serious. It took a man to die for you to bring you to God. Don't treat them lightly. Luke will tell you, friend, it really doesn't matter how far away you are. And John would tell you, only Jesus will give you heaven. Or would tell you to change the way you thought about him in the past and give up anything that will stop you following him in the present. What happens if you're a church person 
and you look at the full picture of Jesus. I want to suggest it's very easy, isn't it, if you've been to church all your life, to get the Jesus, picture of Jesus really quite small. Because what preachers tell us in churches, by and large, is what you've got to do to please him. And while those preachers are hard at work, you've got four men at the back of that church every week shaking their heads, saying, no, 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 no. Because Matthew would wish us to hear more about Jesus' promises of what he will do. He'd want you to live your life trusting that what God said will happen, will happen. Mark would wish you'd hear much more of his sacrifice for you because he'd want to give you a new desire to sacrifice your interests for other people, to give you that desire because that's how we follow him. Very often, you go to church, it's just for Sundays. It's not for sacrifice. And Luke will wish you that you will know how much your forgiveness that you would love him. Very often, church people don't think that they're that sinful, that they've been forgiven much. In Luke chapter 7, Matthew didn't like this woman in his house crying over Jesus' feet. He was a respectable man. You might say he went to church, but he didn't love. And John would wish that he'd hear about eternal life. So often our sermons are pep talks on how to make the most of this life. John is pointing you always to a future home Jesus has prepared. And if you're a real believer, well, those four men would be in the back of the church nodding because Matthew would want to come and say, keep going. Look back at the promises that have been made and kept. Don't turn around. Keep going. Luke, uh, sorry, Mark would come along and say to keep going. Make suffering. Make serving other people your new number one ambition in life. That's what Mark would want to say. Luke would say keep going. Keep going to everyone. You've got an estate, guys, you're living in. Don't leave one single person out. And John would urge you to keep going. Yeah, life is tough now. Keep going. There is a new creation ahead. And Jesus came to make that our home. And he's done the work of preparing a place for us by dying on the cross. Home isn't here yet. You are on the way if you're a Christian following Jesus. Keep going. Well, let's pray. And we'll give people, as we always do, a minute maybe just to quietly talk to God by uh, yourself. Speak to him what is important for you to receive and remember. And we'll pray, I'll pray at the end of that. Well, I'm in up, so let me pray. Our Heavenly King, we pray that those uh, words, those 
Uh, truth about the Lord Jesus, don't wash over us, help us to return to them when we're on our own so we can talk to you more and pray them in. And we pray, Lord, that you would please let that word not return to you empty. Please would they have uh, their full effect. Help us to be those who trust your promises. Help us be those who are willing to suffer and serve. Help us to be those who go out to those who don't know you and bring them home. And help us to be those who live for heaven and point others to the new creation that you have prepared and promised. And we pray all that for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.